Deterrence only exists in the mind of your adversary. Are they understanding what you're trying to do in your deterrence messaging? Are they receiving it the same way that you're sending it and vice versa? You're listening to the USSC Briefing Room, a podcast from the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for a USSC briefing and the latest developments in US news and foreign policy. We'll cover what you need to know and what's beneath the surface of the news. Hello, I'm Mari Kirk, Director of Engagement and Impact at the USSC. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're recording on today. The University of Sydney is located on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and future. Today in the pod, we get to have a briefing from members of our foreign policy and defense team on their recent deterrence dialogue held in DC. This is an initiative the center has delivered jointly with the Pacific Forum for years, but this is the first time we've held it in DC since before COVID. The geopolitical temperature has changed in the Indo-Pacific, and we've seen a change of government in both the United States and Australia. We're going to get an understanding of what the major issues were and key takeaways from these policy insiders. I'm excited to welcome Professor Peter Dean, Director of the Foreign Policy and Defense Team, back to the pod, and he's joined by Research Associate Ellis Nason. Both played critical roles in the design and execution of this important piece of work. Pete and Alice, thank you so much for joining today. At the end of the episode, I'm going to check in with both of you for a by-the-numbers factor stat that's related to the deterrence dialogue. Are you good to go on that? Absolutely. Thank you, Mari. Good to go. Okay, great. Can't wait to hear it. Um, so, Pete, I think I'll start with you, but could you just give us some background on the initiative? You know, what is it? Why is it important? And how impactful do you think dialogues such as these can be? Sure, Mari, and it's, it's really great to be here. It was a really interesting dialogue and it was a really great opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. Again, for me, this is my second trip so far this year. So this was the fourth Track 1.5 US-Australia Indo-Pacific Deterrence Dialogue. So as a Track 1.5, that means it has officials in the room, but also academics and think tankers like Alice and I. And of course, being a US-Australia, we had representatives from both the US um, and Australian governments and think tank and academic communities as well. And these dialogues are really important because it extends the conversation beyond that that happens just in the official domain. So what you do is bring in not just the policy experts and the practitioners who are working in government and in defence on both sides of the alliance, but you bring in people who are the the thinkers and the shapers of policy um, in the public domain and those who really specialise in these types of areas. So some of the academics, for instance, we have in the room are people who are who are highly experienced in um, in these particular topics. At, at one point, it, it was noted by one of the officials that it was great that they were there with a particular academic who, quote unquote, had literally written the book on this particular topic. So this is where you get the theory and the case studies and the history and the contemporary developments in the academic world intersecting with policy practitioners who are grappling with these problems, these very big problems within government, and trying to come up with creative policy solutions to achieve our strategic ends and achieve our strategic goals in what we know is a a really challenging time in the Indo-Pacific, a really challenging time for the issues that our alliance faces. And as both of our national strategies have put out in the come out in the last 12 months, I've said the most challenging time since the Second World War. So these types of dialogues are really important for posing questions, challenging assumptions and ideas, and putting forward some creative solutions and ideas of how we can address the agenda in deterrence. Mm, that's great. And 
Alice, you worked on last year's deterrence dialogue as well. How would you say that this year's in DC compares to the one you worked on last year? Sure. I think moving back to an in-person format after a virtual round really opened the door to a lot more frank and sustained conversation. Uh, Ashley Townsend and David Santoro, who are the co-directors of this initiative, have seen the agenda evolve dramatically over the past few years. Um, The conversation around the urgency of the matter at hand, the specific incidents that we're trying to deter, and our baseline level of force posture cooperation has evolved dramatically since the dialogue's establishment. Especially in the past few years, we've seen forced posture cooperation really set the pace for our alliance efforts, and that has opened the door to a lot more detailed conversation there. Among the greatest changes I observed in this year's round, uh, first of all, a welcome and unusual emphasis on the importance of diplomatic assurances to avoiding harm and inadvertent escalation as both our countries try to undertake strategic deterrence. I think this really reflects a increased leaders level consensus in both our countries about the importance of statecraft and managing competition responsibly. I think there was also this year a stronger consideration of new domains, cyber and space, and also new and more creative forms of partnership like AUKUS Pillars 1 and 2. Uh, This year's round was also particularly valuable because I believe it broke new ground regarding adversaries' perceptions and domestic calculations. Uh, This is something that is essentially um, important to deterrence because uh, deterrence is only as useful as its perception in the eyes of your opponent. So it's really critical to talk about these things when we debate the uh, aims and success of our relative deterrence efforts. Oh, great. Um, And Pete, what can you tell us, I guess, a bit about who was in the room for this? And Alice touched on the diplomatic assurances and some of the other things that kind of arose from this year's discussion, but what themes um, came through from that? Did any of it surprise you? Yeah, so look, we had really good representation um, from both the Australian government and the US government. Obviously, hosting this in, uh, holding this forum in and dialogue in Washington, D.C. makes it much more easily and accessible for senior leadership from the United States. But, you know, starting at the top, we had um, Australia's Ambassador Kevin Rudd come and address the group and engage. And from within um, the Australian contingent that are in Washington, D.C., we have a very high number of people in in positions in the U.S. military and the Department of Defence, but also in our embassy in Australia. So we had the senior leadership from our um, uh, embassy people from the defence section, from uh, the political section in there, as well as, uh, you know, the different service representations from the ADF and also some of our liaison officers to some of the senior US commands. So that was a real cornerstone of the US, of the Australian delegation. On the United States side, we had people obviously from US Strategic Command, the Department of Defence and US Indo-Pacific Command. And senior people, so you know, deputy assistant secretaries of um, of defence, assistant secretaries, principals, deputy assistant secretaries, deputy directors, principal directors, and managers. So, uh, people from a range of different areas, and they came from those key areas that are engaging with deterrence as a core facet of what they do within the Department of Defence in the United States, and more broadly from the non-government sector. So, people like Alice and I from uh, think tanks were involved. Um, senior academics from universities and uh, some people from the um, the broader industry world in Australia, and the same in the United States. So one example, obviously, uh, Charlie Adele, who's the senior advisor and Australian chair from at CSIS in Washington, D.C., but also people from other universities and different um, think tanks and corporations in Washington, D.C. as well. So 
it's a really good mix of, of people. And, of course, for those who understand the US system particularly well, in their system, a lot of the people who are in those think tanks are people who transition in government where they do a lot of the thinking in the think tank world and take those ideas and transition them into government as well. So you're getting people who have both been in government and been um, uh, or are, you know, potentially going into government um, into the future. So it's a really nice mix of people. On the issues, the, the dialogue itself was organised around some of the big key themes around operationalising force posture and force planning for the alliance, on delivering on conventional deterrent effects out to the end of the decade, also the evolving role of extended nuclear deterrence um, in the alliance relationship. And of course, a lot of this is built around how do we deter China in particular in the Indo-Pacific? So how do we understand the ways that China would view what we're attempting to do in China? How we get, as Alice said, how we get the diplomatic messaging of this right? Um, because as we know from deterrence theory, deterrence only exists in the mind of your adversary. So if, if it's a, one of the reasons it's so hard to actually understand deterrence and really get a good grasp on it and qualify it and quantify it, but really it's about who are you t- t- attempting to deter and what are you about attempting them to deter them from and are they understanding what you're trying to do in your deterrence messaging? Are they receiving it the same way that you're sending it and vice versa? So some really interesting points of discussion. I think um, one of the things that was really interesting for me that wasn't surprising but formed the real cornerstone of what we were doing was the fact that there's been a bunch of strategic documents released by both the United States and Australia. So in Australia, we've had the Defence Strategic Review come out earlier this year in a public version of that. But we've also had in last year, the US have a national security strategy and a national defence strategy. And also one of our key allies and partners in the region, Japan, in December last year, also released a national security strategy and national defence strategy. And at the very high level, the convergence around those three countries, but particularly the United States and Australia on on, um, deterrence at the strategic level, is pretty much in sequence and in sync. Now, these are both These are documents come out from national interest perspectives. So they're driven by Australian national interests and US national interests. But you see a huge amount of convergence at the strategic level. So we're both focused on deterrence. We're both focused on deterrence by denial. We're both focused on the issue of resilience within deterrence. Um, So I think this strategic alignment came out was really great. But when you break deterrence down into those things about, as we said, operationalizing it, about looking at the key factors within it. That's where we got to work harder at, I think, at making sure we get better alignment and better understanding because at times as different countries, we have different approaches to that and different ways of doing that. And I think, you know, Alice, Alice might be able to point that out in a little more fidelity, but I think the big takeaway is at the top level strategic approach, we're in complete alignment. But once you get down into operationalizing these things, that's where you start to see some differences. Yeah, well, I might pick up on that. Um, And it is, you know, great and encouraging to hear that even after these major strategy documents have been released, that we're still seeing such high level alignment um, between the countries. Um, But yeah, I guess, Alice, from your perspective, how much consensus do you feel there was in the room between the representatives from the different regions? Um, And I guess maybe where would those, if you could flesh out a little bit more about what Pete was saying in terms of how you operationalize things or the preferences? What did that look like when you were in the room? How did that play out in the discussion? 
Sure. So at the broad level, um, Billy on Pete's very helpful elaboration on that high level sort of complementarity between the two countries. Australia and the US are in lockstep on the importance of delivering security and stability and about the urgency of delivering near-term effects. And I think that is a really helpful starting point for our cooperation. Uh, we share an acknowledgement that uh, larger coalitions within our region is an incredibly important way to do this as we can act collectively to impose costs. But where I think the differences started to emerge were on specific scenarios because we have very different understandings and prioritizations of threat. Uh, for the US experts and officials in the room, uh, the Taiwan situation is the lodestar for their deterrence planning, whereas I think Australia still takes a broader picture of the challenges at play in our region. Additionally, I think the domestically determined interests and sensitivities at play really shaped our different approaches to this conversation. There is a reticence in the Australian bureaucracy to talk about what force, force posture cooperation is actually for. Also a reticence to discuss extended nuclear deterrence, which remains a very sensitive issue in Australia. Our national conversations are at very different stages of maturity there, with US, US nuclear strategy being a constant for decades, where Australian Labor Party in particular has a long history of opposing nuclear doctrines and capabilities, which delimits how this conversation can develop. I think there are many challenges ahead for trying to build that sort of shared strategic outlook where things like Taiwan and Australia are represented in the media as a sample of US provocation and Australian entrapment. Those sensitivities need to be continually reconciled at the political level for us to achieve closer alignment. Well, that's great. And I mean, good to hear that you're getting into some of these more challenging and, and tricky issues and not just you know, what does this mean? But like, what, what does that really look like? And I guess, where do you move forward from here? Um, Pete, how do you ensure that this sort of exercise, you know, it's got dialogue in the name and there's a bunch of people sitting around and talking about these challenges. How do you make sure it isn't just a navel gazing exercise or one where you're simply admiring the problem in depth? Well, I think first of all, uh, I mean, the, the centre here is very focused not just on studying the alliance, but very much under under Mike Green, our CEO's leadership on finding solutions for the alliance. That's what we're really about. That's part of our value add as a think tank. So uh, admiring the problem can be great. That's a fun exercise in and of itself because these are really fascinating topics and really fascinating areas for discussion. But in the end, uh, the value add we can provide as a think tank to the Department of Defence, to the Australian community, to the US DOD and to the Australian uh, US community. And as Alice said, to security in the region more generally is to look at solutions-orientated approaches. Now, the fact that this is a Track 1.5 dialogue, I think in and of itself is a really good outcome. Um, as anyone knows who've been inside the Department of Defence or the ADF or whatever, the here and now, the day-to-day -day grind of what you need to do can really absorb your time, taking time out to attend a dialogue like this where you have to think about these big problems in a big way, you have to discuss them with your, your peers, your alliance partners and listen to different perspectives, starts to challenge our assumptions and our ideas. There's nothing, like I've been doing this for a very long period of time, I always walk away from these dialogues with something new that I've learnt and, and something to reflect on that I hadn't really considered in the same way. And the great thing is that we have policy practitioners in the room. So that list of people I went through before, these are the people who live and breathe deterrence every single day. And you know, many of them spoke to me at the end of the dialogue about what a fantastic day they thought it was. 
how they got a better understanding of these perspectives. So then what we're doing is enriching policymakers in the, the discussions they will carry on in the days, weeks and months that follow. So I think holding the dialogue in itself, of itself is important. As Alice said, you know, doing it in person allowed for much richer conversations. And as anyone who's been involved in these things or any work meeting in whatever industry you are is, often it's the conversations you have at lunch, at morning tea or afterwards or on the sidelines of these things where you go, wow, that was interesting and you had a chance to talk to one of your friends, interlocutors, colleagues or partners where you can then unpick those and lead to further collaboration. So I think that's all really good. But out of this, um, David and Ash have done a fantastic job. This is a Department of Defence in Australia funded initiative that they do with USSC. But Dave Santora and Ashley Townsend have done a fantastic job of delivering reports out of this. And those reports go to both the Department of Defence in, in, in Australia and the United States. And they're very clearly action reports. And as Alice said, the agenda has changed significantly over the four that have been held. You can see that reflected in the public reports that we put out there. And those we know are read by the senior representatives in the Australian and US Departments of Defence, and they go into informing the policy process and the discussions they have to further these agendas. Because ultimately, what these rich conversations do is they bring to surface new ideas, new approaches, or as Alice said, it highlights to the other country that some of these issues are really sensitive and that we may be at different stages of discussions and development. And, and that intersection where the public is at, where the community is at, where our policymakers and our politicians are at, not just our public servants and our Defence Force members is really key. So on the Taiwan issue, you know, I've been to the US twice this year, I've been to Japan, I've been to Singapore, I've been to a lot of places this year, and the Taiwan issue is at the top of everyone's mind. And one of the things I've come back with is reiterated to me that we've got a really poor state of the debate on the Taiwan issue in Australia. As Alice says, it's generally pushed in Australia as a US going to provoke China to do something over Taiwan and then we get entrapped in a conflict. That is not how the rest of the region sees it. It's certainly not how I think any type of potential conflict would most likely evolve um, in the region. And really to, to bring this down to this sort of myopic, it's about Australia and the US and China over Taiwan, removing Taiwanese agency, removing the involvement of key countries like South Korea, um, Japan, the Philippines and the other ASEAN countries from this equation is really far too narrow the debate in Australia on this particular topic. But understanding the context of that debate is really important when you're trying to understand the deterrent effects that we're trying to have and how we can partner with the United States to achieve those. So there's lots of really rich stuff that comes um, uh, out of this from a personal learning point of view, practical policy point of view, a lived experience policy, you know, that immediate effect, for, immediate effect by being in the room, but also then the policy report that follows on afterwards. Yeah, and I definitely look forward to reading uh, the edition of the report from this year. And as um, Pete mentioned, we always make those publicly available. Um, so we'll be sharing that um, through the USSC's normal channels when the report comes out. Um, but it'll be very interesting to see kind of where to from here, what's next, especially as a lot of these challenges um, escalate and become more real. Um, Alice, I'm keen to know a little bit more about this initiative that you're leading at the center called Women in the Alliance, um, and it'll be officially launched next month. Um, but I'd like to get your thoughts um, in terms of how the aims and ambitions of that program um, work alongside things like the deterrence dialogue. Do you think the Women in the Alliance initiative would lead to any changes in a form such as the deterrence dialogue in the future? Sure. 
Our initiative, uh, Women in the Alliance, which is preparing for launch, is aimed at amplifying and further encouraging contributions from female experts in an array of industries to Alliance Conversations. Because it's issues-oriented, I think that it is forums like the Deterrence Dialogue that will really benefit from efforts to bring more women to the table and really acknowledge the contributions of women currently contributing, who often get drowned out in a national security conversation that tends to be dominated by a small group of typically white men. The Deterrence Dialogue over its four editions has benefited from the contributions of a lot of senior female officials and experts. Because deterrence is a very unwieldy concept and we've struggled to get agreement both in our countries and broadly about the concepts at hand, I think it really benefits from having diverse qualified heads in the room trying to flesh that out. Uh, for those interested in this subject, I'd direct you towards the research I'm reading from the likes of Stacey Pettyjohn, Becca Wasser, Kelsey Hardigan, and Jennifer Maroney in the United States, and Fiona Cunningham, Lavina Lee, and Rebecca Shrimpton from Australia. Uh, there are already great minds at work on this, but the Alliance conversation is only growing broader and more ambitious. So hopefully an initiative like ours, which uh, aims to build expertise among emerging leaders in the space, will ensure the longevity of this really rich conversation going forward. That's great. And I'm excited to hear more um, and see the program as it evolves. And maybe by next year's edition of Deterrence Dialogue, um, yeah, we'll see some changes because the Women and the Alliance program will already be up and running by then. Um, now, I mentioned at the top of the episode that um, I'd like to get a by the numbers fact or stat um, from each of you. Um, Pete, how about I start with you? What um, stat did you choose? Yeah, look, uh, Alice mentioned one of the really key and important areas of this is um, uh, extended deterrence. So what we're talking about here is extended nuclear deterrence. This is a really critical part of where we do deterrence. And of course, in the region, in the Indo-Pacific, we've got a significant number of nuclear-armed countries. And Australia has really largely benefited from the relatively benign Indo-Pacific strategic environment for many, many decades, where we didn't have to worry too much about extended nuclear deterrence, particularly after the end of the Cold War. And so nuclear deterrence and nuclear issues were really common in Australia in the 1960s. We saw a lot of movement in the 1980s around nuclear-free zones in the Pacific you know, discussions around uh, the role of Pine Gap and Northwest Cape in, in the, the advent of a nuclear war. And that really dissipated, um, you know, in the period after the end of the Cold War. But now extended nuclear deterrence issues are back on the table. As Alice said, there is a very, very different, vastly different knowledge between US as a nuclear armed power with decades and decades of experience of nuclear deterrence and Australia having to look at nuclear deterrence in a new way. And the Defence Strategic Review highlighted the need to do a lot more work in this area. We've seen a lot more discussion between the US and its other allies in East Asia, particularly um, South Korea um, and Japan on extended nuclear deterrence issues. And one of the reasons this is really highlighted is what China's doing around its military power and particularly around the nuclear warhead estimates that the Pentagon is putting out in its annual reports on Chinese military power. And the report projects that China aims to complete what it calls its nuclear modernization plans by 2035. So at the moment, China's nuclear arsenal, my number, is around 400 operational nuclear warheads. At the moment, China's nuclear expansion and the pace of that rapid expansion means that by 2035, the Pengon is suggesting that China will field 1,500 
nuclear weapons. So that is a massive expansion of Chinese nuclear capability in our region. It's largely being undiscussed in Australia, and it means particularly as we get more and more concerned about the fragile nature of our security environment in the region, the fact, as our Prime Minister pointed out, the Shangri-La Dialogue, the lack of guardrails to control escalation in our region, and the fact that we are talking about great power competition in our region between nuclear, two nuclear-armed states, add in North Korea and its nuclear um, ambitions, and it's a very complex area that we're just not paying enough attention to. But the key statistic here is from 400 to 1,500 nuclear warheads by the time we get through the next 12 years. That's a significant change to China's nuclear capabilities and will change their nuclear strategy as well. Oh, that's huge. Thank you for um, pointing that stat out. I hadn't heard it before. Uh, Alice, what have you got? What's your stat and why is it important? Sure. Following on from this broad conversation about strategic competition in our region, I wanted to talk about a stat that might underline Australia's future contribution. So as we talk about uh, the acquisition of nuclear-powered submarines under AUKUS, I think many have been led to dismiss the eight that Australia plans to acquire as sort of drop in the bucket in a much larger region with really um, massive defence expenditures and an array of complex capabilities. I'd like to direct listeners towards the IISS military balance, which keeps a tab on these capabilities internationally. And it finds that China has 59 submarines, which includes six SSN, SSBNs, nuclear armed, nuclear powered submarines, six SSNs, nuclear powered and conventionally armed, and 46 SSKs. Whereas in comparison, the US has 67 submarines, including 14 SSBNs, two SSNs, and 51 SSGNs. It's in the context of this much closer uh, capability gap between the two powers that Australia's acquisition of nuclear powered submarines stands to make a difference and will actually have deterrent effects. That's great. And I mean, we've been talking about AUKUS um, for so long, and that's where I've gotten most familiar with the term SSN. But I hadn't thought about the U.S.'s breakdown or um, China's breakdown of both the SSBNs and the SSNs. Um, so yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and yeah, I've read the deterrence dialogue reports before, uh, but I feel like this briefing from you has really given me a richer perspective in many ways on what actually goes on in the room um, and the weight of these issues and also even the importance of things that don't happen directly as part of the sessions but over those lunchtime conversations and other um, connection points that are happening. Thanks for taking the time today and I look forward to having you back on in the future. Um, as we wrap up I'd like to point out a couple of other podcasts that may be of interest to our listeners. We have our technology and security podcast, TS, run by Dr. Mia Hammond-Airy, USSC's Director of Emerging Technology, as well as our USSC Live series that runs recordings from our major live events. Recent episodes include a readout from White House National Security Council staff, Kurt Campbell, Edgar Kagan, and Mira Rapp-Hooper, um, in an interview with Qantas CEO, Alan Joyce, and former US Ambassador, John Barry, uh, and our researcher responses to the AUKUS report. You'll find all of these on our website, ussc.edu.au, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, thanks so much again, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Been our pleasure.